0: Hey there, welcome back. This is your host, Akash Pat, and thanks for joining in today. You have tuned in to the 31st episode of the DCVC podcast. I'm extremely thrilled about today's guest as it exemplifies why I do this, meeting and connecting with great investors, investing in tech startups in India, who are willing to share their insights and amazing knowledge about working in this space. But before we talk more to my guest and head into the episode, I'd like to take a moment here to give a couple of shout outs in our Desi Startups of the Week segment, where we feature some of the exciting startups from the country. First up, we have Aisle. We all know how difficult it's been to date during the pandemic, and Aisle is hoping to solve that issue for Indians around the world. So if you're looking for love, stop by Aisle.co. Aisle.co. That's A-I-S-L-E dot C-O. Next up and the second startup we have on the list today is Sarva, India's largest and only yoga-based wellness ecosystem that has meticulously thought through to make your wellness and well-being an engaging and fulfilling experience. The app is available in both the iOS and Android App stores, so do check it out if you're looking for at-home workouts and yoga solutions or visit sarva.com. That's S-A-R-V-A dot com. Now on to this week's episode. I have with me on the show, Sasha Mirchandani. Sasha is the managing director and co-founder of K Capital and is also the co-founder of Mumbai Angels, India's first angel investment group. Previously, he was at Blue Run Ventures as the managing director for their India operations. And before joining Blue Run Ventures, he was the CEO and co-founder of Immerses Technologies. Earlier, he was at Oneida, where he was the head of corporate affairs and new business development. Sasha also sits on the board of Hathaway Cable and Datacom Limited, Nazara Technologies Limited, Adore Welding, HealthCard, Mumbai Angels, among several others. It was wonderful catching up and speaking to someone who has been investing in India since the late 90s and to learn about the evolution of the VC landscape. Let's head in and listen to Sasha's journey as a VC. Hi Sasha, welcome to the DCVC podcast. I'm super thrilled to have you here. You seem to be a morning person because this is one of the earliest episodes that I've ever recorded. Is that true? Yeah,
1: I'm, I'm pretty much a morning person. Uh, when I was younger, Akash, I was uh, one of those date night birds sleeping at one, two, three in the morning. And then like As me. I got older. Exactly. But as I got older, it started decreasing. And now I wake up very early for years now, maybe by 5 at the latest.
0: Wow, that's, uh, that's probably a couple of hours just before I go to bed. So, uh, <laughs> I, I guess I, I need to change my routine now. So, on that note, I mean, welcome, welcome again to the podcast. How are you? And uh, what's been happening in your work for the last six months or so? And how's that impacted you personally and professionally?
1: Well, you know, the early days of the lockdown were hard on me because I'm not used to being locked up. And uh, at one point, it got pretty bad. Uh, the apartment block I live in, we ended up having 21 cases of COVID. Oh wow! And so first, my apartment got sealed because my neighbor got it, and then the whole building, as I mentioned, got it. So we had almost three to four weeks extra lockdown, which was really hard. But then uh, someone sent me a video of uh, Jim Collins, the author, and he talked about the stocktail paradox, about you know Colonel Stockdale, and how Colonel Stockdale uh, managed to, you know get his mental equilibrium right uh, as far as the situation he was in, which was uh, he was incarcerated for some war situation, which is obviously not his fault. And, and the learning was the people who are the optimists actually get the most disappointed. They say, oh, you know, at any moment, COVID is going to go, so I'll be okay and I'll get out of here. But the reality is that uh, a lot of times these things are not in your control. So you've got to just live your life within what's in your control. And after I saw that video, it changed everything for me. And now I'm just in a very relaxed space and I'm just feeling fortunate. You know, you know where the world is. There's so many people suffering. So, it's, it's so much suffering happening that people like you and me and most of the listeners are in a much better space. So I think, you know, we have nothing to complain about. We should be glad and, uh, thank our lucky stars. to where we are. So I'm in that, in a very positive space right now.
0: Definitely. We're in a place of privilege. In fact, uh, during this period, as opposed to a lot of people who have suffered. So it's a very good point that you bring up. How has this period really affected you professionally speaking? I know you spoke about personally and you know you being in a lockdown. From a work standpoint, from the firm standpoint, how has this last six months changed things for you personally in terms of thinking, in terms of how the fund is functioning? Talk to us about some of those uh, nuances and changes that have come about in the last six months or so.
1: Yeah, it's, it's been a lot of change. You know, in the BC ecosystem, the only time you meet your team is on a Monday morning when you have a partner's meeting, and then everyone scrams and does their own thing. You literally meet them at the end of the week. You may have a few meetings with a few of your colleagues in the course of the week with your back office team here and there, but otherwise, everyone's doing their own thing. And now it's come to the other extreme. We have twice a day uh, daily huddles, you know, at 9 a.m. and then once, once more in the evening as well. So you actually... Now know exactly what everyone's doing, not because you want to peer into what they're doing, but you actually are interacting twice a day. I mean, it's ten times a week, let alone the times that you do interact with them again during the course of the week, like I mentioned earlier. So that's been dramatically different. I feel that there's been far more efficiency because you know now you know things are getting done. People know that this is pending from their side and they're holding the whole team back. So he or she gets moving on that point. There's some collaboration to happen. It happens on the calls. Of course, there's many disadvantages, but, you know the actual meeting in person is, you can't compare that to just doing Zoom calls all the time. But net-net, I've been pleasantly surprised with, uh, you know, the situation, not just at our firm K, but with a lot of firms who managed to move the, the ball in these tough times.
0: Has there anything in particular that you have learned during this period from an investment perspective?
1: Uh, I think uh, what I've learned is people are very resilient, and after some initial, uh, you know, Let's say a standoff behavior saying, hold on, this can't be happening. Most uh, entrepreneurs that we have funded, if not all, have realized that they need to move. And I've been pleasantly surprised with the speed, but I'd say over 90% of the founders we have funded us too, you know, moving towards change, seeing the new reality and realizing that if they don't move in a particular direction and very quickly, they'll be out of business. And to their credit, most founders have done that and we've been very pleasantly surprised.
0: So reflecting back on this period, have you invested in more companies than you probably would have at any given point in a different year or has it kind of stayed on the same pace or have you gone below the uh, the line or the curve as such? So I think once
1: COVID hit, like pretty much every VC on earth, no difference. We made no more investments for, the, for a period of time. We focused on cash and we told our founders we need 18 months of cash, right? That's what we think is a minimum. And to the credit of the founders, when we did our last LP update call at the end of April, about 68% of our companies between the two funds had 18 months of cash. Uh, We said, that's not bad. The cost is optimistic. But then we said, let's try and improve that number. So when we did our last LP update call, which was about three weeks back, it moved from 68% to 92%. So now 92% of our companies have 15 months of cash, which means all the way to the end of next year. Nice. So that was like very com- comforting for us because now at least the cash part of it is taken care of. So that's what our first focus was. In the last um, two or three months post uh, the cash situation getting into some sort of control, we moved to the other side and we said, you know, we can't be doing Zoom calls all the time. You've got to get moving. I've been in touch with all my VC friends in the ecosystem. And initially I could see a reluctance to make write that first check by doing the first Zoom check as we, we call it right, in our industry. But I saw one fund do it, then the second, then the third. In the meantime, we decided to move ahead as well. So, from our third fund, which is not even started, we've already made uh, two investments. And uh, we are on the verge of closing the third one as well. So, we had, I'd say we're at the same pace as we've been in the last couple of years. As of the last two months.
0: So, that's a great point that you make. Because I remember making my first check over Zoom this year. And from first conversation to wiring of the funds, everything took place on Zoom. And more than anything else, I think normally we get on a couple of calls with the founders, we try and do a little more diligence, we speak to references and trying to get a little more sense of the business as such. But I found that we were making more of those calls as such. I remember speaking to the founder at least seven or eight times, which is very unusual. And I think the founders themselves also felt that, but were really accommodating because they, they they understood the situation. They're like, okay, you know what? I guess, you know, this is a very tricky period for everybody. Nobody totally knows how we're going to move along. Um, and, you know, these are murky waters as such, so to speak. And uh, I think along the way, we've kind of come back now to how we would perhaps be investing in a, any given point in, time of, in, a, in a year. But we've gone back to a couple of founder calls, a few references as such, and we haven't, really put a lot of pressure on getting a lot more information as we used to in the beginning part of the year when the pandemic and the lockdown was in place. So I think that's been a big change for us as well. Now, I want to focus a little bit on your experience with speaking to LPs and the founders within your portfolio. You know, Initially, let's, let's take the months of April and May, when you know the whole country in India was in the lockdown and there was a lot of panic going around what was the sentiment, one, from the LPs? You know, what, did, what are the conversations that they have with you and how did that unfold? And two, on the other side, on the flip side, what were the founders telling you and what were the, what are the immediate concerns that came up in their mind? And where are they right now?
1: So, you know, what we did, Akash, is uh, we had an annual LP day on March 6th. And uh, I've been in touch and, you know, a lot of them fly down to Bombay for that LP uh, slash Mumbai. And I've been in touch with some of my Chinese VC friends and other friends in the ecosystem. And by that date, I started getting nervous. Because I realized that this situation in China could probably be worse than people imagined. And I was genuinely thinking about canceling the meeting. But it was probably too late because we figured this out over the weekend and Wednesday was the event. And I talked to a few LPs and said, no, it should be okay. So we had the meeting in Bombay. But right after that, we said, let's close the door. And let's focus on, you know, what's going to happen going forward in the next couple of days, weeks. As I said, it could be far more serious than we anticipated. So we drafted a 24-point um, memo for our portfolio, and uh, which has been very well appreciated. And we had several uh, aspects of the memo. The first, as I mentioned earlier, was cash, 18 months of cash. The second was over-communicate with your teams. So if you're a largest company, you're able to do two tunnels a week, so be it. Just over-communicate. And if you have to get rid of people, which is unfortunate, do it in one shot. Don't do it piecemeal every couple of weeks. And, and then we have 24 more points. So, you know, we were thinking about this and said, you know, if you're telling our founders in our portfolio to over-communicate, why aren't we over-communicating? Because you know, normally we just send quarterly reports and have a yearly, uh, you know, physical meeting, maybe once in six months to do a call and that's it. So we said that's over communicate because most LPs are not from this industry, right? Some are. The larger institutions, the smaller ones are not. And they have no clue as to what's going on in the tech industry, in the VC ecosystem. So we started doing calls every two to three months. And, and we started writing notes and sending them out as well. And that's been very much appreciated because now people know proactively what's happening in the ecosystem. So we talked about the overall ecosystem. And then, of course, the K, because they're like, they want to know both. And we continue doing that. We'll have our next call again in a couple of weeks. And we're we'll doing these webinars where people have a better idea of what's happening in this directly in particular sectors or companies like the one we're doing today. So my input is what's worked for us is over communication.
0: That's a brilliant point that you make. And in terms of the webinars and try to communications externally, even for your LPs and the larger industry perspective, have you focused on certain industries or have you like tried to stay agnostic, which is very similar to your investing thesis as well, so that everybody kind of gets an idea as what's happening across the spectrum?
1: Yeah, you know, we've been uh, quite agnostic. Uh, right now, gaming is a sector that we have high interest in. And that's why, you know, Mitish, uh, who's the founder of one of India's largest gaming companies, as you know, is doing the webinar today. And there's a tremendous amount of interest around gaming. So he's been kind enough to take out time from his schedule. So we have a huge amount of people logging in for the call today, as an example. Or we had uh, Arvind Chetty at Bank Bazaar, who's a very good friend of mine. He's not an LP, neither is he a portfolio company. He did some great work on cost cutting. so he gave a generic presentation of what he did in his company, which I thought was phenomenally useful for a lot of people as an example. And so we had different versions. We had another LP of ours, he's a founder of a very, very prominent law firm, AZB. We talked about, you know, you know, and most young founders can't afford an AZB. But now when you have three partners from AZB, do a call for an hour talking about force Major and lots of the other hot topics of that day. It's completely priceless. You have got access to top lawyers in India, top three lawyers. And uh, you can get some creative input and output. For this, because for that moment, that is the most important issue for that entrepreneur.
0: Well, that's wonderful to hear that uh, there's, there's a lot more sort of stability that's come into the industry right now. And certain sectors, obviously, as you mentioned, have seen a lot of tailwind. and. I'm very optimistic about the industry back home in India, uh, as well as here in the West as such, so to speak. And we feel the next 12 months to 18 months will be that period where we will perhaps see a lot more stability going forward within uh, the larger VC ecosystem across the globe as well. You are a very prominent name within the Indian VC ecosystem. You've been investing for a while now. Now, how did you end up here? And what made you bet on startups at a time when no one even Knew of the word venture capital in India, or even venture as an asset class. And before you answer that, um, you know, I I found a very interesting tidbit about you and your father co-founded the Onida group as such. And, uh, you know, you for those like me who grew up in the 90s, Onida was one of India's uh, was India's answer to the Japanese and Taiwanese electronic brands back in the day. Perhaps you could also share some background on what made you want to break away from the family business and venture out on your own.
1: Okay, I'll try and take both the questions separately. So, you know, most most of the listeners will probably be too young, but some of you may remember the dot-com era, which is, if I remember, 1999 to about 2001. And uh, at that time, I was still working in my father's business in Oneida. And uh, I wanted to make an investment uh, because I was just... For all the wrong reasons, right? I just felt oh, it's going to be the next big thing, and we to miss out. But uh, you know, I, I made the uh, I convinced our board to you know go ahead, and we found this really really smart team, and I really liked them a lot. And I said, okay, should we consider doing this investment? And uh, we made the investment on the balance sheet of the company. But within a few months, we realized that, that particular idea, though it was interesting, was probably too early and uh, we said now what do we do uh, in the meantime my father put a new board of directors into the company and they said hold on a minute how can you be making these investments in in, in companies that are not synergistic to what Unita is trying to do so i realized that i need to do something different in the meantime my thinking had changed you know what was happening in those days was that if you came from a first generation family put the second generation families are putting money into their own offspring and, and their own companies so it was you, if you got born into that lane, you got an unfair advantage and you zoomed ahead. So what about the thousands of other smart people in this planet, right, in India? And I said, hold on a minute. This is, there's got to be some better way to do this. And I realized that, okay, I've made this investment. Though the idea was not so great, the team is outstanding. Why can't I support them? And because our company couldn't support it anymore because there was no synergy. I said, okay, why don't I write a check? So we bought the shares of this company. And by then, we pivoted from a, it was a comparison website. It had pivoted to data analytics. Data analytics, as you can imagine, was very early in 2002. You know, it was almost science fiction. Right. But I really, really liked the founding team. They were just outstanding. And so, so that the became what my first... The
0: theme of this company?
1: So that company, it, it struggled for years because they too, you it know, was just too early. Right. But eventually got the act together and it became fractal analytics. Which okay. today is easily the number one analytics company out of India. Uh, and we just raised two hundred million from Apex uh, two years back in that company. So that became my first investment in two thousand two. Between two thousand two and four, I made a few more personal investments, made a uh, exit or two as well. And then I was done angel investing because I was busy running my own operating companies. And then in two thousand six, uh, before I joined uh, Blue Run Ventures as India head, me and my buddy Prashant were having a coffee, and we said. You know, why can't we write more checks into startups, but but smaller ticket? And so we said the best way to do that is to join an angel club. So I remember checking the web to look for something next to my house, like a road tree, you know. But we were surprised we couldn't find anything. So I checked the next day and couldn't find anything. So I realized there's nothing in the whole country. And that's how we co founded Mumbai Angels in 2006. And uh, and so the day job was Blue Run Ventures. And on the weekend, we would do Mumbai Angels. And then uh, in 2011, I quit Duran
0: and started it. It's a very interesting journey that you've had. And, you know, talk to us a little bit more about Mumbai Angels. How easy or difficult was it to start uh, an angel investing group as such? Because this is perhaps the time, like 2006, is when you had the OGs or so that you can call, of Indian VC industry. You had some really well-known established uh, VC firms who were founded during that period. Helians and all of them who came around during the period back in the day. But outside of that as such, when we talk about angel investors in 2005, 2006, 2007, what were the challenges for you to grow that that, uh, that group as such? And how did you begin? What what Where did you tap into? And how, well, how did you convince people that this was an industry or this was perhaps an asset class that they should be considering to diversify their investments? Yeah, good
1: question. You know, it was... So early for the NASA class that I had to educate, I had to, I had to go person to person. So I'd go to even say, Akash, this is what it is, you'd be skeptical. I see, why don't you just come to this meeting? We're doing this once a month. So we started the first meeting, it was only three people in a, in a conference room on the 30th floor of the World Trade Center, some tank conference room. Yeah. It was me, Choksi. I remember my dad showed up, and uh, and there was only one VC friend of mine who you know, normally we don't call VCs because the whole point is getting angels. Right. He showed up because he understood. You know, I think it was Sandeep Moorthy from Lightbox. One time we had Sui, Sujan from Nexus. We were sitting around a room. And then we had one founder. And then I go, but what we did, the best thing we did was two things. One, we curated the list of initial members very carefully. They were mm-hmm. coming from Choksis in my network. So, once you see an Akash part hanging around, and then you see somebody else that is also very successful, you look forward to coming to the meeting. Right. It became a fun activity. And then you would see, we made sure very good, high-quality entrepreneurs started coming to those pitches. I remember one of the first pitches was in Mobi, for example. Right? So you've got high-quality people, high-quality people in the room. So one, two, three, one fine day I looked at the room. and I was surprised. We had 30 people in the room. And all high-quality. That's when I said, look, if you want to take this seriously, we must make, so it was all non-profit. We said, we must charge them. Otherwise, they won't take it. They're all rich people. They can pay a small amount. I was for my own pocket. Feel that right. day. Yeah. And people were more than happy to pay a monthly fee. The second thing we did was, me and Choksi flew to Switzerland in the early days, before we even started Mumbai Indians, and went and learned best practices of Indian investing. Mm. And uh, simple things like Swiss timing, right? Start on time. So, like today in Mumbai Indians meeting, I haven't been involved for years. We'll start on time. 10 means 10. Not people ambling in and starting when they want to and stuff like that. The processes and systems, which is very, very important, Swiss time. And we still use that to this day in 2020. So those are some of the reasons why
0: we succeeded. Well, that's wonderful. And I was going to, in fact, ask you about some of the breakaway companies that you saw back in the early days. And, you know, that was a period when even the founders were trying to figure out what, what, start, what starting up really means. What is the industry? How do you go about it? Where do I raise capital from? What is Mumbai Angels going to do? What is the value proposition? Because the industry was not as well defined as it is right now today. So, from your experience of listening to founders who came in the early days of Mumbai Angels to pitch to you, to where you are right now, and seeing companies come and founders both from an early stage and later stage come and and pitch to you, what's been the transition or what's been the evolution? In your opinion, what have you seen? Has there been more conviction? I mean, this is just an example that I'm giving, but you can tell me anything that you've experienced from your perspective, from back in 2006 to where you are right now, and you know, meeting founders on a day-to-day basis.
1: So, a lot of it is still similar. A lot of it has changed. I just feel better and better founders are coming into the ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Now, when you look at a Mukesh Bansal or a Naveen Tiwari from Mintra or in Mobi, those are timeless entrepreneurs. They're always going to be the best of best, right? They could be coming to us in 2006 or 2008 or 2020, and they'll still be at the top bar of any entrepreneur you know, list that you want to put together. But otherwise, I've just seen that you know people are sitting around saying, hold on, so-and-so can do it. Why can't I do it? And so each cycle I see of my career, I see better founders. And people realize the value of making a better pitch. Even to this date, I see entrepreneurs who actually have done much better than they can portray because they're not good storytellers. And storytelling is not about just spinning a yarn of crap, right? They can be caught up pretty soon. But it's about actually enticing the person to take that journey with you and say, look, this is where I want to go. And I know I'm in very early, this is where it is, this is where I need to do it, this is my team. But some founders don't do a good, good enough job in my opinion. I, I noticed some of the US founders do a much better job of that. Where you see a better Indian company, but he or she can't articulate it as well as some of the Americans. Some! i can not not stereotypical of things all right. many phenomenally successful Indian founders do a phenomenal job of articulation and execution. So bottom line, it's an evolving situation. But I think we can do a better job. Well,
0: that's a great point. And today, you know, just from a personal perspective as well. I run an angel syndicate. It's more of an operator sort of a syndicate that I, that I put together with a bunch of my friends who are investing back home in India. And most of them are NRIs living in the U S who are trying to look and diversify their investments as well. From your experience and perspective, if you're dialing a clock back a little bit, at what point should an angel consider raising a capital for his or her own fund? So, in, in a perfect world, if I had my own money and I
1: didn't, uh, and I could, you know, keep going, I would just do my own money. But one single reason is that uh, the maximum money in our industry is made when you don't need to get out, because you know, the, there's the compounding effect for the best companies. So in my personal portfolio, I have investments from 2001, like fractal right? I'm still a large shareholder, or in Mobi, etc. Right. But most people don't have the money. I didn't have the money, so I had to, you know, start funds and take capital. It's a different planet because you now have responsibility for other people's hard-earned money, right? You got to have a harder lens. You you can't be as flippant. I, I I hope I was not flippant with my own money, but the reality is that you are a little bit more care, uh, careful with somebody else's capital, right? Because you uh, use your responsibility. It becomes a business. There's uh, reporting. So if you're not ready for that kind of stuff. I would not recommend you even think about jumping in just for the you know a lot of glamour, but there is no goddamn. It's it's just hard work and and you've got to deal with so many people. I am mentally quite happy dealing with people, I like people, and I feel I enjoy it. And I for a little bit more scale, our funds are small, so you know, scale is relative, versus doing it with my very limited cash. And therefore I was okay doing
0: it. But people have to think this through before they jump in. Now so, what did you Learn during your period as an angel, what mistakes that you made that perhaps our listeners can can take that into account and not make the same, or perhaps even relate to it in terms of we have, if they've already made it, if they, they probably will not repeat it along the way?
1: Yeah, I think many mistakes of course, but more structured diligence as a fund, right We have a very detailed uh, you know, business case analysis that we do before we make a final investment, right, which I used to do, but without a checklist, you know mm. in my blue run days. You had a checklist in K. We have checklist. Why not as an angel, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, the reality is money is money, and people don't realize the value of checklists. I use checklists for pretty much everything I do in my life. And when I don't use checklists, I screw up things because you know we kind of try and put things to memory. Yeah. It's impossible. So right before writing a check, uh, suddenly someone say, hey, "Did you do that?" And like, oh, that was that was obvious. You should have done that. I presumed you did it. No, I didn't do it. But, but imagine you've already made the commitment. It's too yeah. late, right? And that could that one point. ...of diligence could unfortunately be the key one which shows a negative issue where you would have probably not done the deal. So it's best that you just write it down and, and have a detailed checklist. Checklist is not just a mat of crap. You thought through what those elements of that
0: checklist are and then do it in a systematic manner. That's a great point that you made and you know, let's, let's go back and talk about that. As an angel, what was your thesis? And how, that, how did that evolve during your angel investing days as well? In the early days of angel investing, what did you look at? What were you willing to take a bet on? And towards the latter years, when you were, you know, maybe 2010, 2011, when you had a few years under your belt, how did your thesis evolve? So what we did right and what we stood up is, uh, as an angel, it
1: was all about the people. If You right. see Fractal, it was all about the people. It started as, as a comparison side, it became Fractal. Um, InBovie started as mobile search, but then became mobile advertising. Mintra started as a cafe press for India, but then became the Mintra the we you know on online apparel business, right? Huge business. And that's why we did well. people. The mistake people make is when they fall in love with the market, especially mm. in India. You don't change CEOs in the second week of funding the company, right? So if, you, if the founder is right and the market, leader, obviously that's, even a kid will tell you that's a dream situation. But if you're to pick. I would always pick the founder. And the mistakes we've made, you know, have been where we fell in love with the market. And then we were analyzing the company and saying, holy shit, what, what went wrong? Because everything was right. But the founder was wrong. So, we are back to obviously doing both. But laser focused on founder, founder, founder first. If you or she is, even an inch away from what we think, and obviously we can be wrong, obviously. Uh, then we say, you know, forget it. It's a hot market. But what is the wrong word? but And we don't go after hot market. But it's the market we like. But, you know, we'll skip this one and look for a better company, or a better entrepreneur, or not even do this category.
0: Right. No, that's great. I, I like that you brought that point across. And that's very important for our listeners who might be thinking about angel investing or, or have already been into um, the angel investing business, so to speak, uh, for the last few years or so. I'm really curious to understand where you stand now as K-Capital and how has the fund from fund one to fund two evolved in its journey and what are some of the sectors, you know, I know you're agnostic, but what are some of the sectors that you've been personally bullish about in uh, from the fund two perspective and uh, how has that played out for you?
1: Yeah, so fund one, we did primarily two categories, uh, B2C, consumer internet
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we did B2B, SaaS companies. Mm-hmm. You know, same thing, born in India, go off in the US. And uh, we, we actually did very few, but for whatever reason, we did a few US only deals.
0: Okay. In both the sectors.
1: Uh, in both sectors. Okay. US, was, US could be anything, right? Because you could be a B2C company, but the US could be a B2B company. It doesn't matter. US entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Very few, very few, luckily. Uh, one, two, we said we won't do US anymore because we have no right to win a deal in the US. Even though, surprisingly, a, US, a few investments turned out quite well. So, you know, from a financial point of view, we'd be fine there. But it didn't make any sense for us to continue unless we had a person on the ground.
0: Yeah, I was just gonna ask that. How difficult was it for you to analyze companies when you weren't on very when you weren't here was, in the US? And how what was the was main source of uh, deal flow for you at that point?
1: Because I had worked in the US and through you know Blue Run, we had lots of connections in the valley. I still do. Okay. So that's where we got very good deal flow. But it's just there's enough to do in India, right? Unless we became like a nexus model where a very senior person moved to the U.S. Mm-hmm. and then built a team. Then, of course, that model makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. So you've got to have the entrepreneur or a senior person has to be in the market where you are. You can't be remote control. Life work on remote control. We right. tell the founder of our sales company, you want to be in California uh, if you want to go to the U.S. And how can we sit in Bombay if you're doing U.S. deals, right? Yeah, that's true. So bottom line, no more U.S. deals, mm-hmm. even though we did financially okay. So uh, in fund two... We realized what was also working beyond consumer internet and uh, B2B SaaS was that we realized that B2B for India was finally opening up
0: mm-hmm.
1: and we saw there's a huge opportunity in B2B for India and the other category that was opening up was um, consumer non-tech mm-hmm. and we saw that by traction in our first fund where two of our best companies actually came from those categories so we have a company called HealthCart which has done extremely well it's a you know consumer brand Yep. And a series of brands, actually, which can actually probably return all of our first fund. It's on track for that. So we said, let's double down on that category. So we've done a few more of those investments in K2. And the B2B company that did really well from K1 is a company called Porter, which, again, is on track for returning our fund. So we said, let's do more of them. So an example of what we've done in K2, again, consumer is a company called BSB. It's an alcohol company. We, uh, we market rum, vodka, whiskey, and Jin is doing phenomenally well we have a company called zetwork which is a B2B commerce company which is doing extremely well again so that's how it's worked out for us that's that's, really good, that's why
0: that's so in k3 when we started later this year we've right. continued on that path. that's interesting and is that is that going to be the biggest learning that you've had from running both the funds it's that you're going to be focused more on india and indian based companies going forward and the fact that uh, they're going to be technologies that are ready made for today's problems and not just uh, global issues as such, but more India focused issues. That's right.
1: So, we've seen Zetworks, a great example. Yeah.
0: We have a couple more that we haven't.
1: They're more. I would say they're stealth mode, but they're much earlier, but they're looking very interesting from the second part. So, time will tell, but they're clearly India problems. And the good news, Akash, is that, like I mentioned earlier in the podcast, the quality of founders in 2019, 2020 is better than I've seen in 2020. To 2002 or 2006 or 9 or 12. And because you know when you go after a hard problem, you need a phenomenal set of people right, to go crack that problem. And you see a company like Udaan, which you know, we are not, obviously not investors in. It's done phenomenally well as a great example. But the quality of the Udaan founding team is A+. Plus, and therefore, you can go after an extremely hard problem and solve it and build incredible value for all stakeholders.
0: So even Zetworks, for that matter, uh, is a great company. In fact, I've been following what they've done in the last um, you know, eight months, to 10 months where when the pandemic hit them, it was a very difficult point of uh, time in their uh, life cycle as such, but they pivoted quickly and they've found adjacent markets to be the ones that they can really tap into. And today shows you that if you've had great founders on your on your team, no matter what the problem is, you can really pivot quickly and you can still build a very successful business model. And that is, that again goes back to your initial thesis when you had from back in your day as an angel investor, where you backed the founders more than uh, anything else and you need that. Yeah. I mean, companies don't get to what their plans are.
1: Companies become the, the people they hire, right? So you can have all the dreams in the world, I'll do this and that, and then you realize you haven't done it and because the people that you had were not capable of doing it. So it's, it's all about hiring the right people to get to that vision. And, you know, it sounds like a you know motherhood statement, but it's 100% not. Most people don't do it. That's so why only few
0: companies become network, right? I love that. I love that quote. Uh, I think that could be like a highlight of this uh, this episode as such. Now, we're getting to a point now in India where we're seeing the same names across the industry uh, invest in quote-unquote hot deals, so to speak. In your opinion, how do you decentralize venture capital today to allow for more level playing field? Because let's face it, one, if you own a baby percentage of a round, you're never going to make significant returns for your fund in the larger scheme of things. And two, you're automatically priced out sometimes because of the larger checks written by these funds, which perhaps might not be in the same space that you will will write a check. How do you tackle that issue going forward? And have you have you had discussions with your fellow VC friends around that? Or is this even a concern that's ever popped up in some of your discussions with partners or LPs, so to speak?
1: No, it's a fair question.
0: And we are paid by
1: LPs to be there as fast as possible for the right deals, right? If you're reading about a deal in the newspaper or some sector, it's probably too late for a seed fund like us. So I always tell my partners, don't even look at that category. We've slept on it. Move on. The whole idea is someone should be reading about our deal. Someone should be reading about a network. Saying, okay, K did it and now somebody else has come and done it after that. And so we have to scramble, we have to think before the curve, kind of read the tea leaves. You know, we get paid for that. And the idea is we can't get 10 deals right out of 12. But if you get a couple out of that 10 right, that's more than enough. Because the, you know, the big winners win big, as everyone on this podcast knows. So the idea is can we scramble, get early enough, form our thesis, and take that risk? Because we're paid for that risk.
0: So, how do you decentralize it going forward? How do, we, how do we decentralize capital being deployed in India? And ensure more uh, people are able to get a slice of the pie. We're seeing um, some firms actually go into smaller
1: towns. You know, you can be an entrepreneur anywhere, right? The reality is, why can't you be in Jaipur, why can't you be indoors? Uh, you've seen in the U.S. Apart from you know Boston, New York, San Francisco, which is still the bulk, and then L.A. But, you know, a few years back, L.A. had nothing. Right? Now you have Snapchat, you have so many companies come out of LA.
0: You have Austin, Austin and Portland which are doing really well right now. That's right. You've got
1: New all coming out and Steve, Chase, uh, Steve Case from AOL has been making a big you know, move towards looking at companies. In my last job at the Blue Run, we just sold a company to SoftBank, Cabbage. It's from Atlanta. Yeah. With the Unicorn. Right? And yeah. no one knew about Cabbage but uh, my colleague Jonathan, who is a managing partner of the firm, to his credit, sourced that deal, closed it. And did extremely well with it, and exited three weeks back. As an example, mm-hmm. so even in Mumbai, Ages, we're doing a lot of deals where, you know, the deals are now outside of the, the big metros, and we're getting some great deep flow from there right now. So, be where there is no competition. It sounds easy, but people don't do it.
0: That's that's wonderful ad, uh, advice. And for emerging fund managers, I think that's a really important piece of information that they need to know, and really look at markets that haven't been saturated. You know, when we talk about it from a founder perspective, we do diligence, we talk about markets being saturated. It applies the same to even emerging fund manager or fund managers as such. Don't be in markets that are like super high crowded. Um, look at markets that are up and coming, tier two, tier three markets in India have shown great potential. And that's where most of the audience also is, especially if you're a consumer brand, let's, let's, let's say that, or even on the uh, impact side. These are where, this is where the action is and these are where companies, uh, you know, some really exciting companies will be born in the next few years or maybe they're already there and we just haven't found them.
1: You can just own a market, right? Go
0: into a market early, take that chance and say, okay, I I own
1: indoor, I own whatever. You have to think through that is is there enough ecosystem reasonably ripe enough to get going. You can't, you know, pick a city where no one shows up and uh, then own that or that vicinity around it.
0: It's, it's, you can perhaps just take a good example of how India was like 20 years ago, when anybody was starting out in venture capital was, it was such an uncertain sort of an ecosystem and apply the same principles today. Like when you enter tier three markets, it's still going to be very uncertain, but you're early in the game. And if you've had experience, you know, looking at sectors and markets previously, it kind of gives you that sort of head start into these newer uncertain markets where you can really be the first mover. And sometimes that's the advantage you're looking for. And if you're even if you're a smaller fund and uh, you know you're thinking cities are you know very difficult for you to really crack, that too many VC firms are competing and they're usually the same deals. I'm not able to get in. Maybe it's also an opportunity for you to start thinking about newer markets and seeing if there's an opportunity there for you to really break away. That's right. Now I like that. Now I want to move into my last segment, which is a rapid fire and really put you on the spot. So Firstly, I mean, what is the most frustrating thing about being a venture capitalist? I think the frustrating thing is uh, I would love to spend more time with uh, our portfolio companies but
1: because, you know, we have have different partners in the firm. Each of them manages their own companies. I wish I could spend more time. I love spending more time with founders, but I end up spending more time with LPs and other things. I have no problem doing that, but I would love to spend more time with founders. That's why I got into this business in the first place.
0: Great. Now, could you name a few companies from your anti-portfolio? <laughs>
1: Too many. Um, Maybe audio, one or two Ola, that
0: stands out. Oh, okay. Uh,
1: delivery. So, I
0: mean, go through. Misho. Me I mean, so many. Awesome. Great. Uh, I'd love to, at some point in the future, dig into what made you miss out on these deals. So if you were to start all over again, would you want to be a founder in today's market or would you want to be a VC?
1: Obviously, know, in my view, the best is always to be a founder. Because the founders are the best are the people who create true value. But I, I feel I'm far better off as a VC. I'm nowhere as capable as any founder. Forget about the people who built unicorns. But even any founder started coming in and called it to even 1 million. He or she is better than me. So I know my place in life and I'm happy being a VC.
0: Great. And lastly, Sasha, what's your advice to Indian founders who are raising funds during this very uncertain period?
1: I think if if you have a high-quality proposition, there's a lot of money available right now. So I would not be worried about going out and raising capital. A lot of our best companies have raised money in the last four months. About 250 million has been raised between our two funds in the last three months. So I would go for it. On the other hand, if I feel that, look, I need to get my act
0: together, then I'd wait a few months. So it depends on where you are in life. That's a wonderful point to actually end the podcast on. So thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure speaking to you. This was great. And uh, we'll continue to keep in touch and hopefully, uh, you know, we'll, we'll get you back on the podcast again, delve into de- deeper topics with you. Thanks, Akash. Be safe. And that's a wrap on this week's episode, everyone. What a fantastic journey and amazing human being. Really enjoyed speaking to Sasha on the show. Drop me a note if you enjoyed that episode and I'd also appreciate if you could like, share, review, rate, and subscribe to the podcast. That's a whole lot of stuff that I've asked you to do. But if you do even one of those things, I'd be really, really grateful. It really helps others discover the podcast. Well, before we sign off, I really urge you all to check out Aisle, a dating app for Indians worldwide, and Sarva, India's largest and only yoga-based wellness ecosystem. Dating and fitness are both equally important part of our lives and I'm really happy to see some exciting companies take a new and fresh route in tackling these problems. We have another great guest lined up next week so I'll see you on the other side in about seven days time but until then stay safe everyone and continue to keep hustling.